Hello, I'm Jonathan Smith. I'm the lead pastor at One Church TO, and you're listening to the teaching time from our weekend gathering. We're an imperfect community of over 70 nationalities and five generations who are attempting to follow and shine Jesus in the greater Toronto area. Our vision, it's so simple. We want to help people from all walks of life know God, love people, and in turn, impact our city for good. We've designed these weekends to be meaningful, challenging, and encouraging, and I hope that's what you get from listening. This is the last message in the series in the book of Colossians called, we've called it Anomaly, and I think you would agree with me, what a beautiful book, theologically rich, and even last week you saw how practical the letter is that Paul writes to the small church in modern-day Turkey in the city of Colossae. So we're going to look at the last chapter, chapter 4, and Paul concludes this letter like he does many of his correspondence. He gives a bunch of shout-outs at the end of his letter. So I'm going to read a portion of scripture to you. It's going to start at verse 7 in chapter 4. Some of the people we're going to mention I'm going to speak about today, I've never spoken about. And this is a passage I've never spoken on. And because we're going through a book, we logically conclude it with this. And Paul has a lot to teach us through this. So chapter 4, verse 7, starts this way. It says, Oh, dear brother Tychicus, will tell you all the news. He's a faithful servant, indeed a fellow slave in the Lord. I'm also sending Onesimus, who is a dear and faithful brother. He is one of your own. They will tell you everything that's going on here. Aristarchus, who's in jail with me, because Paul, when he's writing this, is in a prison in Rome when he's writing this letter. He sends greetings also. So does Mark, Barnabas's nephew, Jesus Justice sends greetings as well. These three are all fellow Jews I have among uh, my colleagues working for God's kingdom, and they have been an encouragement to me. Verse 12, Epaphras, one of your own folks, sends you greetings. He's always struggling in prayer on your behalf, praying that you will stand firm and mature and that your minds will be fully settled on everything that God wants you to do. Verse 14, Luke the beloved doctor, he sends his greetings also. So does Demas. Pass my greetings on to Nympha and the church in her house and say to Archaphus, take care to complete the commission that you have received in the Lord. Now, what's going on here? There's a lot of people he mentions in the end of this. In fact, in this small book, a very small letter he writes to this church, he dedicates a considerable amount of space to giving shout-outs and to platforming almost a dozen people, of which many of you have never heard their names before unless you've read this passage. So who are these people? And why does he give them a shout-out? So we're going to explore them a little bit today before we apply it to our life, because it's important you understand why Paul spent time kind of platforming them. He platforms first, he platforms Tychicus. And Tychicus is known as really, you could call him his trusted assistant, He's a man that was faithful to small things and God put him over more things. There's something in God's kingdom and economy that works that. When you're faithful with little things, God is enabled to trust bigger things to you. Often in our culture and world, we want the big things right away, right? We want, no one else does, I do. We all do, don't we? But it's actually the faithfulness in the small things that builds the credibility and the platform that can sustain you 
when you get big things. So Tychicus is one of these guys. He's an interesting man. He's a Gentile from, uh, from Asia Minor. He's a believer. And he noted, it's, Paul notes about him that he's the type of person that always encourages your heart. He gets a shout-out in Colossians. He gets a shout-out in Ephesians, his letter to the church in Ephesus. In fact, when Paul's approaching his death, he's near death. In 2 Timothy, he writes, and he puts Tychicus in charge of the church in Ephesus. Faithful in small things, faithful with large things. It's an incredible story. Paul, this story reminds us, and Tychicus reminds us what matters in the kingdom of God. Faithfulness, encouragement. Those are the kind of things that don't get you uh, flex. Or, or help you to get clout in your social media platforms. Nobody goes around talking about faithfulness. But in God's kingdom, that's what gets you a shout-out. In God's economy, that's what gets you a shout-out. Then you see there's a man named Onesimus. And Onesimus would have been known to the church in Colossae because he comes from there. In fact, Onesimus is a runaway slave. He stole from his master, his employer, a man named Philemon. And if you want to know more about his story, it's fascinating. There's a personal letter written in the New Testament called Philemon. And Paul writes it on behalf of Onesimus to the man that Onesimus had stolen from. So everybody knows Onesimus. And Onesimus is with Jesus, or with Jesus, with Paul. He feels like Jesus right now. <laughs> He's with Paul. And his is a story of grace and hope. I love that he gets included in this shout out. It's a reminder of how powerful the gospel is. See, Onesimus stole from Philemon, ran to Rome to hide in the big city, and providentially encounters Paul, who's under house arrest there. And Paul leads him to the Savior. And the gospel is a restorative, powerful... It, this story of Onesimus reminds us that no one is beyond the power of the gospel to be restored. No matter what you've done, no matter how far you've wandered, the gospel says it can not only, and he reminds us, it reaches in, it picks us up, and it restores us. I'm glad Onesimus is in this story because I think we're, a lot of us are Onesimus-type people. We need that. We need someone to restore us, and the gospel can do that. Then we read about uh, Aristarchus. And Aristarchus is a Jewish man from Thessalonica. And he's an interesting guy. I like this guy. I hope you have an Aristarchus in your life. He's the guy, you read about him first in the book of Acts because there's an angry mob in Ephesus and they grab Paul. And who's right by his side? Aristarchus. Who doesn't run? Aristarchus doesn't. In fact, when Paul is shipped to Rome to face trial, Paul is shipwrecked on the island of Malta. Who's with him? Aristarchus. He's shoulder to shoulder. When things get tough, he doesn't run. I hope you have an Aristarchus in your life. I hope you're an Aristarchus to someone in your life. When the going gets tough, he keeps standing up. He shows courage and steadfastness. You see evidence that he gets mentioned in this list, that in the kingdom of God, God always shouts out devotion and steadfastness and loyalty and courage, and courage because it matters in this world. Then we're talked about a person named Mark. Now, Mark's real name was John Mark. Now, you'll read sometimes in the book of Acts, they'll call him John, which was his Jewish name, and Mark was his Roman name. Over time, his Roman name supersedes his Jewish name, and he's known as Mark. He writes the Gospel of Mark. Have you read it? It's a good read. It chronicles the life of Jesus. Now, what's interesting about the Gospel of Mark and about his rise to, to notoriety, it wasn't meteor meteoric. In fact, Mark 
Jean-Marc had been a bit of a failure. He had let down Paul. On his first missionary trip, he took Jean-Marc with him, and Jean-Marc deserted him, left him in the middle of it, left him hanging dry. And in fact, on the second missionary trip that uh, Paul was going to take, he refused to take Jean-Marc with him. And Jean-Marc, uh, uh, he's a nephew, his uncle was Barnabas, who was kind of Paul's partner in ministry. It caused a division between the two of them. So it's over for John Mark and his ministry. I mean, he's failed, right? He's failed. But Barnabas salvages him, nurtures him, restores him. And in fact, John Mark joins Paul again in the mission because Paul forgives him. I love that this story is here. In fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul reflects on Mark to his protege, Timothy. He says, of all the people, Mark has been most useful. Isn't that interesting? Somebody who had totally blown it with them, totally blown trust with them, totally broken trust with them, gets restored and brought back. And this reminds us, I love that Mark, it reminds us that there's always a second chance with God. There's always a second chance. You know, as I read that story, though, I often think of Paul. Because I meet people along the way, and I meet people, and maybe this might include some of you. I meet people that once you've been wronged once, you cut that person off forever. Once they've broken trust with you, you're done with them. Paul reminds us to always keep your eyes open that those people that may broke trust with you, they can repent and they can get better. And sometimes a second chance is what we should give the people. Just saying. Okay, then we'll move along because we don't want to spend too much time on that. Because I want to talk about this guy, Jesus Justice. Because can we just pause and say, is that not a boss name? I love that name, Jesus Justice. Now, I, he probably used the justice because Jesus was a very common name in that uh, time. It's the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew name Joshua. It was very common among Jewish people. So we probably went by Jesus Justice so that when they're writing, they're not mistaking him with Jesus the master. So Jesus Justice, we don't know a lot about him, but we do know this. He brought great comfort and consolation to Paul in his hour of need. And people will bring comfort get a shout-out in God's kingdom. Man, I am so thankful for the Jesus Justice people that showed up in my life along the way. I, you never forget them. Sometimes it's not, never what they say. It's that they come to you. They stay up with you. They sit with you. When Shelly lost her dad, she, we were in our mid-30s, early 30s, and it was shocking to us. And who knocked on the door? Well, a couple of Jesus Justice people, and they just sat in the living room with us, and we needed that. Different periods in our life where we felt beaten up by life. You ever been there? Beaten up by life? <laughs> and a Jesus Justice person shows up, and they just stay up, and they show up, and they sit with you. I'll tell you, I hope you have Jesus Justice people in your life. You need at least one. And I hope you're a Jesus Justice person to someone. Because in the kingdom of God, comfort matters. Comforting people in their hour of need matters. You know why, they're, why I think they get a shout out? Because it requires you stopping and slowing down to be with people, doesn't it? The enemy of every good relationship is speed. The enemy of anything meaningful is going to be speed. And Torontonians, friends, let's admit it, we're busy people. And in fact, we get applauded for speed. But if you don't slow down, you'll miss those moments with your kids you'll never get back. If you don't slow down, 
You miss those moments where you could have comforted someone, where you could have come alongside someone. I know it's not spectacular, but in God's kingdom, it is. Then we go and we see a man named Epaphras. And Epaphras is a fascinating guy. He comes from Colossae. They know him. He brought the gospel to the city. He brought it to the city. And Paul calls him and notes that he is what, and growing up in the church I grew up in, we call someone who is really fervent in prayer, we call them a, a prayer warrior. Well, Paul calls him that. He's like that. He says that Epaphras, is, for him, prayer was not a game, it was a battle. And he prayed continually, fervently. He prayed with purpose. Paul describes Epaphras as always wrestling in prayer and working hard. Oh, this man's so important to building the kingdom of God. Every church needs an Epaphras. Every ministry needs an Epaphras. Probably more than one. I remember when I went to Montreal to pastor a church there. Well, I left with something out of a conversation with Pastor Keith, who was the lead pastor here. And Pastor Keith had started an elders ministry at this church, but he had a greater vision of what it could be. And, and I remember thinking, okay, I'm going to borrow that idea. Not steal. <laughs> borrow that idea. And when I went to Montreal, I raised up a group of elders that could be an extension of the pastoral team. So when we came back here, Pastor Keith and I worked to, to create that elders ministry uh, in a way that could be share the spiritual weight of this church. So we have these great elders that are part of our church that share in the, carrying the spiritual weight for, with the deacons and with the pastoral team of our church. I'm so thankful for them because Epaphras reminds us that in the kingdom of God, some of the greatest work you can do is on your knees. It's in prayer. Some of the greatest things you contributions you make to this community or to our city is you pray for our city. You pray for the needs in this world. You pray for your church community. You pray for your leaders. You pray for the people around you. You pray for those who are hurting. Why? Because that's some of the most important work we do. And then we're reminded by a man named Luke. And he's probably familiar to many of you. We know a little bit about him. We know he's a physician. He was a doctor. He's an educated man. He was an author. He was a historian. He's the only Gentile that writes anything in the New Testament. And he writes the Gospel of Luke, and he writes the Acts of the Apostles, and he chronicles them. But Luke is known as Paul's most enduring companion. Luke reminds us to bring our talents, our gifts, even our professional abilities to the kingdom of God, to be of use to Jesus. Now listen, some of you are professionals, and we're having a surfair off this, after this, and you're wondering how your gifts and talents can fit in. Well, challenge us to find a place for you, because there's a place to use all of those giftings and abilities in the kingdom of God to do something lasting, something worthwhile. And Luke reminds us of that. And then we're reminded by a man named Damas. And Damas is interesting in that while Paul writes in Colossians, Damas is supporting Paul. He's standing right beside him. He's supporting him while he's imprisoned. But this changes over time. In fact, he says this in 2 Timothy 4. He says, Damas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. You know, he reminds us, and he's on this list, and what a good reminder that we can all fall away. He doesn't fall away because things got tough. Sometimes people drift because they go through difficult seasons. And maybe 
they blame God, maybe they blame a church community, whatever it is. I've, I've met with people. But that's not Damas's problem. His is, he drifts because the world is more glittering and there's something he wants in it. And he falls away. Listen to the affections of your heart, the things that enamor you, the things that attract you. Because be careful, they'll lead you. They'll lead you and they can lead you away from things that bring you life. And Damas serves as a bit of a warning to us to be careful, to watch our hearts. Then there's a woman here named Nympha. And Nympha gets mentioned. We don't know a lot about her. We know this, she was wealthy. She had a big enough home to house the church in Laodicea. In the New Testament, all the churches met in homes. They were much smaller in that day. The Christian movement, the way was just getting birthed. And so they would meet in homes. And Nympha had this big home in Laodicea that she could house uh, the, the church there. So she was a person of means and wealth, and she used what God gave her for the extension of the kingdom. So again, she reminds us, what has God placed in your hands? What has he given you? It can be things, it can be your personality, your abilities, whatever it may be. What has he given you? And how can you use it to serve in the kingdom of God? Then there's Archaphus, and he's the last man mentioned here. And Archaphus, again, we know very little about him. Most scholars believe that he was, he's from Colossae. Most of them believe he's the son of Philemon, and he's the pastor of the church there. And Paul kind of gives him some encouragement with challenge. I'm that type of person. I like both of them together. Too much encouragement makes me soft. Too much challenge could crush me. I love that tension between being encouraged and challenged, because I always feel like I can do better. We can do better. Well, Paul's doing that to him here, to Archaphus. He says this. He says, complete the ministry that God has given you. For some reason, he's waning. He's getting discouraged. It's likely because he's probably been combating all the false teachers of the day. There were so many false teachers in that day, and, and Paul was uh, combating them. You can read it in his letters, and this would have been his job in Colossae to do that, and he reminds him. And, you know, this is a great reminder to us. Sometimes we need a kick, and sometimes we need a hug, don't we? You ever notice that? Anyone ever been here? Are you more the type of person that needs a kick in the pants every once in a while? Or are you the one that needs the hug? Or do you need both? Yeah. You know, I, I keep in my office here, I, I keep uh, two files in my filing cabinet. One is, says letters on it, and it's got an upside-down smiley face. These are all just terrible letters written to me, <laughs> saying all kinds of things about me that if I believed half of them, I couldn't live with me. <laughs> it's angry people who said angry things over the years, and, and I keep that here. Now, why is this important? Well, because there's going to be little kernels of truth amidst all of the narrative. And I need to be, and we need to be humble enough to receive feedback, even if it hurts, because we need to learn. So I try to look beyond the anger and say, what, what hurt them? Because anger is really a secondary emotion. It's something that presents because something else is stirring under the thing. So, so I keep that. But I always keep in front of it this one. And this is filled with letters of encouragement. Little notes, and man, they seem to come at the time I need it most. Man, I love how God's kingdom works. But little notes, little thank you notes, little reminders that what you teach didn't fall on deaf ears, but somebody grabbed it and made it work in their life, and they're thankful for it. 
little notes of thanksgiving for the, the staff team and what they've done here. Like, all, all those things along the line, I know I need both. Sometimes I need a kick. Sometimes I need a hug. And Paul gives this man both of those. So he gives these shout-outs to almost half a dozen people. And when you look at these people, they're an eclectic group of souls, friends. They're Paul's island of misfits. They're, they're a fascinating group of people. He gives them shout-outs, but it, while he's giving them a shout-out, he is also shouting out loud and clear what really matters in the kingdom of God. And he doesn't want his listeners to be confused about that. See, here's what's interesting. I'm going to give you two points on this as we reflect on this passage. One is, God uses ordinary people in extraordinary ways. When you go through the list of people, you're struck with how ordinary they all are. I mean, they're ordinary people. None of them, there's no, none of them defeated Goliath. None of them parted a Red Sea. None of them made the lame to walk again. None of them raised the dead from, none of those things. They seem to do very common things. Encourage, be faithful, serve. All these common things. And yet they get this big shout out. Hey, they may not be spectacular, but they are invaluable. You see, the kingdom of God works more like that. We're more enamored with the spectacular. I get that, friends. The kingdom of God finds things that we think spectacular as like, okay. And it sees things that we think are ho-hum as spectacular. In fact, Paul writes and explains this to a church in Corinth. He says it this way. He says, take a good look, friends, at who you were when you got called into this life. So just remember who you were. I don't see many of the brightest and the best. <laughs> what an insult, right? Among you. Not many of the influential, not many of the high society families. Isn't it obvious that God deliberately chose men and women that the culture overlooks and exploits and abuses and chose, the, chose those nobodies to expose the hollow pretensions of somebodies? He keeps going. That makes it quite clear that none of you can get by with blowing your own horn before God. Everything that we have, can you say that with me? Everything that we have, now say it like you believe it, everything that we have, right thinking and right living and a clean slate and a fresh start comes from by way of what do we have to brag about? What do we have to brag about? He goes on to say this. That's why we have the saying, if you're going to blow a horn, blow a trumpet for God. Right living, right thinking, a fresh start, all of that comes from God by way of Christ Jesus. See, the kingdom of God works this way. Confounds the wise uh, with the foolish things of this world. The weak are made strong. Uh, Nobody's exposed the pretense and the hollowness of the somebodies. We see it all over the world. That's how God's kingdom works. And so in Paul's list, he includes some very unlikely candidates. There's a criminal there in that list of shout-outs. There's a woman. That shouldn't be surprising because Paul hung out with Luke. If you read the Gospel of Luke, it's one of my favorite Gospels because he mentions more people than any of the other Gospels that never get mentioned. Why? Luke is very concerned with the supporting cast. The people that lent to it. And of those supporting cast, he mentions more women that are in leadership 
and authority and those that worked and sacrificed and gave and supported the ministry than any of the other writers. So I think Luke and Paul kind of uh, rubbed off on each other, and it's important. He mentions a woman here. There are Jews and Gentiles here. There are rich and poor in this list. And they're all serving, using their unique abilities to advance the kingdom of God. And God is letting us know what gets rewarded at the Bema seat. The Bema seat is a term in the New Testament means the judgment seat. And everyone who's a follower of Jesus, it tells us in the scripture, will stand before Jesus someday and give an account. Wait, 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 Jonathan, I thought you said, you know, when we're in Jesus, our sins are forgiven. You're not giving an account for your sin. Because if you're a follower of Jesus and you trust him in this life, you'll be blameless in the next life. But you will give an account for what you did with what God gave you. He didn't give me much. I didn't say about quantity. What did he give you and what did you do with it? We'll stand before God someday and give an account there. And, you know, that's a little sobering, but also, also it should be energizing. Because we know what gets rewarded. He kind of gives us the cheat code on this. We already know what's going to get the shout out, what's going to get the applause, what's going to uh, store up treasure in heaven for us. And Paul leaks it out in this whole list in chapter 4. He says things like this, faithfulness. We, we don't get rewarded for faithfulness in this life, do we? I was talking to someone in our church family. He might even be in the room today. But uh, he was talking about uh, changing cell phone providers. He had been, I think it was cell phone or landline or something. He had been with a provider, one of the telecommunications companies, for years. And he phoned to get a discount. They wouldn't give him a thing. So he left to go with the, the competition, gave him a much better rate. Guess who called him the next day? Yeah. Won't you come back to us? They're not going to give you the benefit while you're with them. They're going to wait for you to be unfaithful to them before they ante up again, right? Isn't that true in life? You know, that's true even in marriage relationships. So like one partner leaves, and all of a sudden, the other partner has a come-to-Jesus moment, and they're going to do this, 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 until you move back in, and then all of a sudden, I'm just saying, faithfulness is not rewarded in this life, but it is in God's kingdom. Faithfulness really matters. You can see it all over this list. That gets a shout-out. So does Forgiveness. We all love getting forgiveness, but this is about giving forgiveness. That gets applause in heaven. Service, courage, endurance, compassion, kindness, love, sacrifice, encouragement, and generosity. They're all, all overt or implied in that text in chapter 4. Paul's wants you to know this is what gets shout-outs in God's kingdom. This is what gets noticed in God's kingdom. It's these type of things that matter. Now, all of these people are known to the church in Colossae. When Paul's going through that list of people, they know their names. Why? Because they've served and they've sacrificed. You know, I have a mission at One Church Deal. I don't want any lonely people here. Now, that means, doesn't mean if you're lonely, you can't be a part of here. I want everyone to find community here. And I always say this to people, if you're lonely, there's nothing better than finding a place to serve with people. Because when you serve alongside of people, they notice when you're not there. They begin to build a friendship with you, and they build uh, affinity towards you and you towards them. And then when you go through a tough time, you have a built-in group of people that are looking out for you, prepared to come alongside you. If, if you don't serve, or you're not a part of a community group or anything, sometimes you can wonder in a big church, like, does anyone know me? 
All I would challenge you to say, are you known? Are you known? We're, we're having a, and Pastor Keith and Pastor Dan mentioned it, we're having a serve fair at the end of our gathering here. And if you can't make it, you might want to grab the QR code or you may have got a handout on the way in or you get one on the way out where you, you might want to consider finding a place to serve here at One Church TO. You might want to serve our children. Well, Pastor, I, you know, I don't know if I want to be around kids. You know, I don't know if I like them that much. Well, why don't you serve them by being security then? Or why don't you serve them by coming in during the week and sanitizing all the toys that they play with because we make sure it's a safe spot for all our kids. You might want to serve in the parking lot. You might want to serve on our weekends. You might want to serve during the week cleaning the facility or answering phones. You might want to serve online some way. Listen, I'm telling you this because I know you're a Torontonian, so I already know you're busy. And I know service requires sacrifice in Toronto. And sacrifice and service are a beautiful offering of worship to God. And I know that this is an opportunity for you to lean. I guarantee this. You'll never sit further along in your life and say, I wish I hadn't served. I know this. You'll be thankful you did. You'll be thankful you're a part of other people's lives, connecting dots to Jesus, getting healthier and better. You will be thankful that you rolled up your sleeves and served. So I want to encourage you to do that. Here's the second truth from this passage, and we're going to end on this one. It's simply this. God uses practices to save us from what traps us. Now, I wanted these two words to rhyme. So I had come up with a word like trapsesis, but I thought, I'm working too hard, aren't I? God gives us all these practices and scriptures to help us, protect us from the things that could trap us in life. So he gives us practices like, like giving. Giving is a practice, you know, our members and part of our church, we give 10% of our income to this local body of Christ, this church. Why? Well, one is it benefits the body of Christ when you, you don't want to be just a consumer, you want to be a contributor. So it benefits other people, but it benefits us also. Every time I give, I'm killing that little piece of me. And greed is one of those sins in scripture you can't see in yourself. Others can see it in you. Greed and materialism. You can't see it in yourself. That's what it says in the Bible. And I think as I've journeyed through life, I've found that to be true. Giving kills that trap. Uh, it's like Sabbath. Sabbath counters the God of work or the hubris of work. That somehow work can fulfill you and work is an end to a mean. And if you work yourself, you know, that's the... Listen, work won't be there for you when your life falls apart. That's not work's role. Work is not a God. Work is a good thing. Work is something we should do. It's something to be productive. It's honored in Scripture. Nothing better than just honorable work is so healthy for our souls and so good for us. But don't worship work. We keep work in its right place. And Sabbath reminds us to rest so that our work does have more meaning. Then, then prayer is to counter our inter, in, independence. Every time I pray, you can pray for things, but recognize this. Every time you go to God and pray, you're saying, I'm not enough. He's enough. I don't have it. He has it. I can't do it. He can do it. Every time we go to God in prayer, we are pushing back against that thing that says, I'm independent. I'm my own person. I can do it on my own. I know how tempting that is especially the certain personality types. And then finally, this one that Paul's practicing, shout-outs to counter egos. There's something about sharing the spotlight, sharing the platform, shouting out others, taking the spotlight off yourself that does something to control this thing inside of you and me called the ego. You know, I, I was in this course when I was on uh, my sabbatical, 
and it was an executive leadership course, and it was with cohorts from all over the world. I think I was the only Christian like church pastor in it. Most of them were corporate people and, uh, and governmental officials. And partway through, what struck me in the whole course was they were teaching corporate people how to be more like the not-for-profit sector. And I was, I was just fascinated because they're talking about organizations being kinder and nicer to people and better to them. And so they taught them how to have a conversation with people. I'm just obviously laughing on the other end. Of it. This is like, these are executives, high-powered people, very successful people in life. But they're saying, like, when you have a conversation with people, I love their phrase, be interested, not interesting. Be interested in them. Don't be the star of the conversation. I was laughing because why do you have to tell people this? Because there's a little ego monster in all of us. And the ego is fragile. Have you noticed it? And in this world, it says to keep inflating your ego. Inflate it. Grow it. Uh, they'll use another word often, self-esteem. I'll, I'll get to that in just a moment. But what's interesting is the ego is addicting. And it's addicting because it always says and only says nice things to you. It tells you how special you are. How talented you are. How amazing you are. Uh, but it doesn't help you improve. The word ego actually means this. Unhealthy self-regard, selfish ambition, and straight-up arrogance, right? I think we get this last one, right? See, but there's two images here. There's one of insecurity and one of arrogance. We get this person because you've met that person. If you've not met that person, you might be that person. Arrogance, you know, the overestimation of oneself and overinflated self-worth, uh, 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 like that you think you're better than you really are. But also, insecure people have ego problems. Insecurity is an ego issue. See, the ego keeps the spotlight on you. And both insecurity and arrogance does that. It keeps the spotlight on you. Ryan Holiday wrote a book called uh, Ego is Enemy. And in it, he says, you can aspire to two things. You can aspire to be somebody, or you can aspire to do something. And he argues that in this world, we live in a culture and a world right now in westernized, uh, it's not a Christian book, but just in westernized culture, where everyone wants to be a somebody. And that's why everyone is clamoring to get noticed, to get recognition, to be recognized as someone special. Everyone wants to be an influencer, YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, wherever. And they want to be the, uh, an influencer. Everyone wants to have clout. They want to be known as special, to be a somebody. You know, and if they can't be a somebody, they're going to watch people that they deem to be somebodies. You know, like the Kardashians or whatever. I'm not taking runs at anybody here, but I'm just saying, like, what have they done? Anyways, I'm just saying, uh, they're a somebody, and so we're fascinated with anybody who is a somebody. Uh, here's the other option, though. It's not just to be somebody, it's to do something. And he argues in his book that when you're concerned with doing something, you're more concerned about action and education than you are validation and status. So the person who aspires to do something in life is a lot more concerned with being useful than looking useful. Look, being useful than, than looking busy. They're not so concerned about their appearances because they understand that if you do good work, it'll get noticed. If you do good work, it'll get noticed. 
He says this, your main enemy is not external, it's not bad luck, it's not bad parenting, it's not schemes or enemies, it's not people blocking your path, your main enemy dwells within, its name is ego. Now, we call it self-esteem a little bit in our culture and world. In 2013, it was in the New York Times, a psychologist wrote a study or revealed a study. It's fascinating because we think in our world, and she was convinced and she showed the data around it, we're convinced that people do bad things in this life because they lack self-esteem. And she would say that the data and everything would say the exact opposite, that it is an overestimation of one's abilities that, and confidence and overconfidence an ego that's out of control that actually causes the most pain and brokenness and, and, and harm in the world today. And, and the, the idea is simply this. The ego uh, is a powerful, powerful thing that actually begins to control you, not develop you. Now, you might say, but Jonathan, you need it. You don't understand in my corporate life and stuff. You need to have a little bit of that ego. I, I would argue that you might need confidence. And confidence and ego are very different things. Confidence comes from competence. Confidence comes from competence. As you get better at things, as you begin to master things, you get more confident you can pull it off. It comes from repetition and it comes from work. And that builds confidence. Confidence is really important. Ego overestimates your contribution. The ego always always blocks your path to growth because the ego, all learning and all growth requires humility. Every, all learning, all growing requires humility. I, I follow a lot of Stoic philosophers online. I love philosophy. And I love what this Greek philosopher said. He said, it's impossible to learn that which one thinks they already know. There's a fine line between confidence and overconfidence. There's a fine line between confidence and arrogance. If you think you already know, you can't learn. It requires humility to learn. Paul is shouting out people, not that want to be somebody, but that have done something. He's not flattering them. You know, don't you hate flattery? Flattery is used to control people, and it usually puffs them up and brings pride to them. Flattery is a tool that's used, and listen, let's be, who doesn't like a little bit of praise? Everybody loves praise. But be careful with it. I think you should handle a lot like uh, uh, Dr. Tim Keller says. He says this about praise. He says, to smell praise is to enjoy it for at least part being partially true. Recognize all this praise that you might be getting, partially true, maybe. There's always going to be embellished. People are for you. They want you to succeed. Uh, to swallow it is to enter the illusion that you are less flawed than you really are. Yeah, you know, I always say this, you know, don't believe all the bad things people say about you. Don't believe all the good things people say with you. The, the truth's somewhere in the middle. Somewhere in the middle. It cuts the nerve of reliance on God's unconditional love for our self-regard. When we need human praise too much, we are slaves. We are slaves. Or as the wisdom of the book of Proverbs would say this way, praise and compliments are like perfume. It's nice to take a whiff but you don't want to actually swallow any of it. Let's, let's uh, wrap this up. Paul ends his letter by shouting out the cast of people that have supported him and the cast of people that have furthered the mission of God. You have a cast of people. You're part of a cast of people. All of us are. 
Friends, there's a reason why I team teach here at One Church Seal. I love the, the teachers that are part of our team of teachers. Pastor Keith, our teaching pastor. Pastor Jessica, our direct, one of our directional leads. Pastor Matt, one of our directional leads. And, and we have in guest speakers. There's a reason why I team teach. Would I like to teach more? Yeah, I enjoy it. But there's a reason I do that. There's a reason why I lead with others. That I don't make all the decisions. There's a reason why it's important that the deacons of this church and the staff of this church can say no to me. It's really important. Why? Because I want to make all the decisions. There's something in me that would love to. There is something in me, there's a little ego monster in me that would love the spotlight. There's a little ego monster in me that would love to take credit and get noticed and feel special. It might be just me. But there's a little ego monster in all of us. And the problem with that ego monster is there'll never be enough. You keep feeding it, and it just gets hungrier. The ego monster in you would have you believe that you see things perfectly. The ego monster in you would have you believe that they are wrong, not you. The ego monster in you would have you believe that only you can do it properly. Or, or this one, if you were the leader, you would do it differently, right? Because don't we all know more when we're not actually in that seat? Uh, your way of doing things is the right way of doing things. That's what the ego monster wants you to believe. And you can tell when your ego monster is out of control. Here's some telltale signs you know the ego monster in you is out of control. Now, you may not see it, but the people around you, they can see it. But they don't want to tell you, and I'll tell you why. Because your ego monster cannot be corrected. Your ego monster gets overly defensive. So it costs people to tell you the truth, so they don't want to tell you the truth anymore. Why? It's just too expensive for them. They feel beaten up by you. you the ego monster is out of control if you need to be noticed as a somebody. If you're controlling, if you need the credit and you can't share it or you can't give it, if you're always right, the ego monster is actually the one in control. Here's, here's what I love the words, and I'll leave you with this. Jesus' half-brother James speaks to Christians in the first century and it echoes to Christians in the 21st century. I hope you hear this. I hope you know it. You hear it all the time from this platform, but I want you to grab these words before we close in prayer. James chapter 4, verse 10, he said this, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honor. This is beautiful, friends. Get this. You do the humbling, or we will be humbled in life. Better you humble yourself. And then you don't need to lift yourself up to be a somebody, to get noticed, to get shouted out. Who will do it? God will. God will lift you up in honor. Friends, live for the praise of Him. Live for the applause of heaven. Live and fuel the things that matter in the kingdom of God, faithfulness, encouragement, and goodness, and love, and joy, all these beautiful fruits of the Spirit that have been placed in us when we become a follower of Jesus. Don't fall into the trap. So here's the last two questions we're going to pray. Who is your supporting cast? And who needs a shout out today? Who do you need to, maybe, maybe it's the person you're going to drive home with. 
Maybe it's a little awkward in the room right now because you're sitting next to them and you realize it's a long time since I've acknowledged that they're carrying me. But maybe they're the one who gets the first shout out. But there's probably other people, people that pray for you, people that look out for you, people you take for granted, people who make meals for you, people who miraculously, when you leave the house, you come back, there's clean laundry there. How did that happen? Miracle. (laughs) Thanks, Mom. Who needs the shout out? And the second question I'd ask you is, where's your ego at? I didn't say all those things to hurt you because it always hurts to take a look in the mirror, isn't it? I said it so that maybe you'd have an opportunity to humble you. Humble yourself. All of us are in process. None of us are done. All the perfect people left a long time ago is just us. That includes me. Not perfect, falling short of the glory of God in need of a Savior every day. And if there's any good you see in me, if there's any good you see in each other, it's because we give glory to God. It's him. We blow the trumpet for him. Man, where would I be without Jesus? You wouldn't want to know me. You would not know it. And the truth could be, the same could be said of you. So we get the chance to humble ourselves. And we're going to do that right now. We're going to pray. You pray with me. We're going to give thanks for your supporting cast. We're going to ask God to help make us a better supporting cast for the people in our lives. And we're going to humble ourselves. So let's, let's do that. And join me online if you would. Father, and I just ask you to bring to mind the people that are part of your supporting cast. The Tai Chicas, people that are, they assist you in life. The Epaphrasis who pray for you in this life. The Jesus Justice who show up and comfort you in this life. Think of their names. Here's a little prayer you can say. Father, I give thanks for, and just insert their name. Thank you for the gift they are to me. Give me creative ways to be able to shout them out, to encourage them, not flatter them, encourage them, and to give thanks for them. And God, I recognize that I'm part of someone's supporting cast, might be my children, might be my spouse or my partner, might be a, a, my, my aging parents, might be my young adult kids, might be friends of mine, might be work colleagues, but I'm a part of a supporting cast too. God, I humble myself right now to serve the people that you've placed in my life. Help me to see, God, that that's my role. I'm going to serve them. I'm going to love them where they're at, take them as they are, and trust that you'll never leave them as they are, God. So I trust them into your care, and I want to be a part of your plan for their life. Help me to bring life to them. And then for all of us, maybe this is for every one of us, because there's a little ego monster in all of you. Father, today I humble myself. For all of my accomplishments, all of my professional accomplishments and skills and leveling up and advances and promotions and salaries and everything else, God, all of my awards and in, in different fields, whatever they might be, God, I recognize you gave me breath in my lungs. You gave me hands to move. You gave me a mind to think. You set me in places of privilege where I had education available to me. 
I had pathways open to me. I had people open doors for me, God. I like to think I did it by myself, and I acknowledge in this moment, I did not. I did not. I did not. People have helped me along my journey. And most importantly, you have helped me along my journey. I humble myself and I say, not my way, but your way. Not my will, but your will. Thank you, Jesus, for loving me. Thank you for your grace. And Jesus, ultimately, you served me by going to the cross and dying in my place. I'm here because of you. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you found this helpful, we hope you join us at one of our campuses if you're in the GTA for a weekend gathering. If you're listening from somewhere else in the world, we'd encourage you to join us at onechurch.to slash live. We believe everyone can be a part of what Jesus is doing both in our community and in our city. So if you'd like to connect with us at a deeper level, visit us at onechurch.to slash next steps. See you next time. Thank you.